and that kind of thing. Whenever we have people in the hospital, whenever there's needs, whenever somebody might need meals, those things go out. We send two emails a week. One is on Friday. You always get that on Friday, and that's like all the stuff that's going on here, you know, where I'm going to cook out or something like that. Family news always goes in that other one. So if you want to see what babies are born or see what's going on and see who to pray for, that's going to be in that weekly email prayer that will go out on like Wednesday or Thursday, one of those days. Give us some grace, right? And uh, So anyway, um, so that goes out on Wednesday or Thursday. Um, Something that uh, we're thankful for is the ability for you guys to just pray. You know, you don't know the, the meaning of that prayer list until your name's on it, right? You know, you know what it's like when you have somebody in a hospital, somebody you just like, please pray. And you hope and pray there are people that get it and just don't read it like the community newspaper. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we're going to pray. Um, Carrie Anderson, who normally plays banjo in our band over here, um, for a lot of you who don't know, he was in a very serious accident uh, over a year and a half ago, spent a month and a half in life support, still doing surgery. And so I was just talking to Carrie out there in the lobby. I said, is it okay to mention on Tuesday he's having ACL reconstructive surgery still from that accident? So he won't be up here for a couple weeks on the banjo. We've been missing him. But anyway, just remember Carrie and see him. And um, I'd say maybe you can make a meal for Sarah, but she's so picky. The pickiest eater I've ever seen in my life. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, there's also a missions needs paper that was handed out. This is not a buy now and you're going to get to know. This is something we've been excited to tell you about, and I'm going to see if I can do justice for it. There's a company called Right Now Media. Some of you may be aware of this company. It is a kind of a Christian version of Netflix. You know, it's amazing. There's 20-something thousand videos on this website. And so what happens is you could click on there, and let's say you have children. You want to go to a children's section. It has all these children videos. If you want to learn about apologetics, you want to learn about... um, uh, how the Bible came together. You want to go on and watch uh, Bible studies. Francis Chan, Study in the Holy Spirit. All nine recorded sessions, or however many there are, including the Leader's Guide. All of these, this is not like, oh yeah, this was really cool two years ago, and then Tony Evans releases something, right, and we get it on TV. No, this is current stuff from Andy Stanley to Charles Stanley. I'm, everything you could imagine that is theologically sound, that is on video, has been put in this one resource. And it's all yours and it's all free. We purchased it as a church because if you're visiting, you're thinking, you know, who are we? Very simply, we're still trying to figure that out, you know, but I'll tell you this. Our goal is for you to be the minister of your home. You to be the minister of your family. That's the hero. We do everything we can here to diminish the personality behind the pulpit. We want you to look, you know, Amy, I want you to look at Ray and go like, you know what? You're the godliest man I know. And Ray's like, who? Don't scare me like that. But I mean, but it's true. I've great what I've seen in your life and the growth in your life. There's times I hang up and I'm like crying. I'm just like shouting out to God. That's what it's about. And that doesn't just come with like what you hear or what we do in one hour. It happens throughout the week. It happens through fellowshipping with other people. That's what we want to do with you. And so on your phone, if you have an iPhone or have a cheaper version of like an Android or something like that. You know, you can have this on your iPhone. You put on your laptop, your computer. If you do not know how to do this and you're saying, thank you, it means a a whole lot because I have no idea how to download this app or do what to do. In July, in the conference room, you have some of the younger folks in there and create our own little smart bar of Creekside. And we're going to go in there and have you bring your phone in and they're going to put everything, they're going to put that 
right in your phone and show you how to use it. Or you can bring your laptop. Or if you have a computer at home, one of our, you know, some of our guys will go there and put it on there for you and show you how to use it. But it's not only free. This is not for members. If you're visiting, it's for you. On Monday, we're sending an email out. An email will go out to everybody and telling you how to do this and instructions. If you have any questions, you can call us or even call that ministry. This is also, you ready? This is really cool. You can use it and give it away to everybody you know. So let's say you're working with someone, you're at school with someone, and they have questions like, I tell you what, here's, use this code, sign in, get this code, and now you, they have access to 20-something thousand top-notch Bible study videos that I watch all, I mean, I, I used to pay 180 bucks for, for like a series of stuff to come in with all the stuff. This is all all free. So it's investment we as a church made for you. We want you to have this and you just get ready. This is something you can share with your kids and whoever you meet. So I don't know if you're excited as I am and I'm pretty excited about this. So we'll get that email out to you. Alright, let me pray for me and we'll do this right, okay? Lord Jesus, please speak through me. God, Lord, uh, don't let me be a distraction in any way. Let your word really shine. In Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we preach here? What do we do? We walk through verse by verse by verse. And so we're going to cover a chapter today. We've been in a series in 1 Samuel since I think the beginning of the year. And we're walking through and today we are in chapter 25. Just to give you a quick update, the cast of characters we're dealing with today, there is King Saul is not necessarily in this, but King Saul is the current king of Israel. David is the next king of Israel. He's God's anointed chosen one to be the next king of Israel. King Saul has been chasing King David now for 10 years. It's been a decade, a decade that David has been on a run. Now, it's coming upon a time known as sheep shearing season. Say that a few times, right? Sheep shearing season is coming up and it's not unusual for people to go out and ask, hey, can you... Can you give us some meat? This would have been equivalent to people, um, Shaley, when y'all grew up in Missouri on a farm, you had, there was probably an overabundance of stuff of, t- of times, and maybe there was organizations you donated to. Um, they would call it uh, gleaning a field. You know, we drove by in Plant City yesterday and looked out, or, or Lithia and that, looked out, it was watermelons, and there were just old watermelons laying around, and somebody's pulled over. The landowner didn't mind. They've already harvested the stuff. It's just laying out there in the sun, going to rot. This is a common time for people to be charitable. So David is embedded with 600 men. 600 loyal men have chosen to follow him and they're camped out in this place. The sheep have been brought in. The goats have been brought in to be slaughtered by a very wealthy man. The Bible makes no uncertain terms how evil this guy is, how foolish he is. And on the opposite end, Nabal is his name. He is married to Abigail. This couple, by the way, if you're saying, I've never heard these names, they've never popped up until now in chapter 25. His wife is beautiful. She's stunning. She's intelligent. Was, how did they come together? I could, I, it could have been an arranged marriage. Who knows what? But anyway, we're going to pick it up. Chapter 25, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Let's stop right here. Three words could not have kicked off and set off more emotion in Israel than those three words. For those of you who are old enough, do you remember where you were at 9-11? Remember exactly where you were. I remember also the aftermath of 9-11. 
you remember if you'd go onto late night TV like David Letterman or whatever? No, there were no jokes. The nation couldn't even laugh for a few days. I remember as um, still attached to the bank when I was working at the bank and I was hearing stories from other co-workers in Manhattan. They said cabs weren't even charging a, a cab fare the day after. The nation had come together. This would have been equivalent to Israel. All of Israel, no matter how jacked up a king was, no matter how messed up they were, Samuel the prophet was still there. Samuel this great judge was still there. Samuel this man, there was a rock of stability in him. And then he dies. And the nation now knows, they know David is going to be king. They know Saul's trying to kill David. They know David doesn't want the throne until Saul has died of natural causes. The, the nation is confusion. All 12 tribes to come together. Everybody comes together, but guess who wasn't invited to the funeral? David. Guess who, even if he was invited to the funeral, wouldn't go? David. Saul would have killed him. He's tried several times to throw spears at him. He's chased him down with thousands of men. And so here, Samuel dies. Verse 2. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. By the way, as if, you know, remember, you always kind of underline why is it in there. For all you Calebs, I don't know how, what, what a kind of a heritage you had in being a Calebite, but it wasn't really well respected, right? As if to say, oh yeah, by the way, he's a Calebite. That should explain everything. You know, kind of like, well, he's from Polk County, so that should explain everything. <laughs> so, anyway, now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He's a Calebite. Verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And here's the instructions he's going to give them. He says, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And this shall greet him. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now that your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing at all while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Stop right here. Does this sound reasonable? Totally. David is in camps with 600 men in Carmel. This guy Nabal is wealthy. Not just because of the number of sheep he has. I mean, for them to document how many is telling you how well off he is. When you go out west, you would never go to a rancher like, how many head of cattle do you have? It's really like, like Pat, how much money you got in the bank? That'd be really strange. You just wouldn't do that. This is their wealth. There's no banking system. This man, did you catch this? He lived in Moab, but his business was in Carmel. This wasn't even his home. This was his off-site ranch. And so he sends 10 young men. Why does it emphasize young? I think, I believe it to be because they're less intimidating. He's not sending 10 seasoned warriors. He's sending 10 men, young men, not intimidating. And they bring about a message that is so genuine. The message is this. Hey, all the time that your cattle or your, your flock have been in this area, we've protected them. 
we watched over because you have bandits, you have poachers, you have raiding parties, Philistine detachments coming in, stealing. Can you imagine a security system of David and 600 warriors? These are, these are men that have been gone, some of them, for a decade. You're talking about a man, this is not just words and you say they want to die for, they would kill for. These men are protecting all these sheep. They didn't lose anything. So David naturally says, would you feed my men? Watch the answer given in verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants. Who is this David? Who is a son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Now, first of all, that is not a question of, who's David? Who's who's it? No, he knew exactly who he was. He says, who is this David? He even pops off his lineage. Who is his father, the son of Jesse? And then he says this line, there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. He's looking at David, he's calling David this to to David's young men. He says, that man's property of a king. This guy, I can guarantee you, had so many servants run away from him. So many of them just bolt. And so he's saying, yeah, there's a lot of servants running away these days. Basically saying you're nothing but an object. Okay, now, that's it, right? It's what he's going to say. These ten men are going to go back. But no, he's not done yet. Because remember, Nabal, we're about to read, his name means fool, literally. And so here we are. Verse 11, he says, Shall I, get this, this starts a pattern, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed from my shears and give it to men who I don't even know where they come from? Wow. You talk about possessive of everything. And there's, there's nothing more disgusting than to see people hoard and to hide and to, and to guard things and to not share it where God gave it to them to share. This still goes on. And so, no, no, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Look at verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. How's David react? Verse 13. David says to his men, Every man strap on a sword. And every man of them strapped on a sword. David also strapped on a sword. About 400 men went up after David, and about 200 remained with the baggage. Now, he has taken two-thirds of his force to move in. Abigail steps in. Remember, discerning, beautiful, wonderful Abigail. Watch what happens when one of the young men goes up to Abigail. By the way, it says, Behold, one of the young men... Can we just take a second and just say thank you, whatever young man you are, that we don't even know your name. This guy, God used to save the day. But one of the young men who are working with Abigail and Nabal told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while, uh, we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. This young man goes up to Abigail and starts saying, by the way, your husband railed. Well, that word railed, 
I'm not saying I do word study on every word in the Bible, but when that word has only been used two other times that we know of in recorded history. Its description is as if a hawk in its last bit before it pounces on a prey will let out this huge scream. This guy was shouting obscenities at these ten young men that David sent. Nabal is yelling at him. Now here's what's crazy about this. The young man that approaches Abigail is a servant. Correct? He's a servant. He approaches Abigail and he's talking about Abigail's who? Her husband. Nabal. Did you see what he just said? He is a servant of Nabal who looks at his wife and he says, he's such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. You can either deduct one thing, or several things. That is the bravest servant on the face of the planet. That guy right there, he is a death wish. This guy, are you crazy to say this? But this man knows, I guarantee you, he knows exactly what exists in that camp. He knows the cut of these men. Did you say, did you hear that? We were with them. We were with them. They served with us. We were together. This man knows what these men are capable of doing. And what he's doing and walking up to Abigail is not, he's not in there to say, Abigail, would you please change the mind of your husband? This man is walking in knowing that at any minute a killing party is going to come and he goes to this woman and he says, your husband has killed all of us. We're going to die because of that man's foolishness. So this man is just spewing out what he's saying. Verse 18. Then Abigail made haste. Talk about a pantry. Watch this. Took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five seas of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins, gross, and 200 cakes of figs, laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me and I'll come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. You talk about a lot of wisdom in verse 13, or verse 19. She says, tells her young men, get going. She's slapping the donkey's rear ends. Go, go, go. She says, you just take off. And then she didn't tell her husband. Why? Because she knew this man was not just a fool to one. He was a fool to everything. He knew her. He, she knew him better than anybody. And so they take off in verse 20. And she rode on the donkey and came under the cover of mountain. Behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness. So nothing has missed all that belonged to him and he has returned evil for good. Now, watch verse 22. That wasn't bad enough. God do so to the enemies of David more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. This is David. Man after God's own heart. Sweet little shepherd boy. This man has just said I'm going to kill every man attached to the house. Not just every son. Not just every nephew. He is going to put under sword and kill and destroy every male servant in that household. I'll also give you a little background. And I do so say this in maturity. Not trying to make light of it. But just I'm giving you an idea, an impression of this verse. Your verse. There's maybe one or two of you who have a version that really truly says what this verse says. And uh, this is one of those equivalents of you're on your way home. And the dad's sitting behind the wheel and he says, you tell him when I get home I'm tanning hides and I'm coming through and I'm bringing wrath that you've never seen before. And meanwhile, the mom's translating, your daddy's really upset. You know, like he's coming. You know, this is that. The actual 
translation, and I'll give you the PG as opposed to anything, he says, there won't be a person that can pee on a wall that's going to be alive when I get done in that village. He said it a lot more frankly than that. Verse 22, for the writer of 1 Samuel to put that in there was saying, he's ticked. Ticked, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried down, got off the donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. Does that sound familiar if you were here last week? What did David do when he walked out of the cave and he saw Saul? He fell on the ground and he bowed to the ground. This is, so she bows to the ground and, and, and she falls before David. Verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, oh my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. By the way, what follows is one of the greatest speeches and the most eloquent, discerning speech that I have seen. This, is, this, this rivals Esther giving a speech. Watch these words. Let not my Lord regard this worthless Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do you evil be as my Lord, be my Lord as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who followed my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you shall live. Stop right here. That is, what she's doing is recognizing, she says, when, will certainly make my Lord a sure house. She's not talking, those, those words aren't meant to say, you're going to have a nice fruitful home one day. She says, your house is a king's house. God's going to reward you. She says this, my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. Do you know what encouragement this was for him to hear? Think about this for a second. David has been on the run. He's being pursued by the king of Israel. He has no title. And yet what happens anytime an enemy comes into Israel? Who responds? David and his 600 men. There's no thank you. There's no pay. There's nothing. And meanwhile, this woman is out there going, thank you for fighting the Lord's battles. I don't care if love language, number one, is not words of encouragement or affirmation. I guarantee you, it feels good to hear it after a little while. And you have to remember, let's not Monday morning quarterback here. I mean, who would want our story told in the Bible? Can you imagine that? Josh, can you imagine your whole story being laid out in the Bible and some overweight preacher going, well, aren't we glad we're not Josh? You know, do the, like, think about, the, it would be cruel. And so in this particular case, you, you, have, you have a man, why is he reacting this way? He loves his 600 men. Ten years of built-up rage and anger have hit. Samuel, his last rock on this earth, is dead and he couldn't even go pay respects. When that word came back from his ten men, he pretty much cussed us out and said, you're a joke. David didn't just flip out on that. He lost it for everything. And this was a rage, and he's moving in, and this woman is so smart. And Abigail says, you fight the Lord's battles. You've been doing it. Verse 29. If men rise up, pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. 
You talk about smart. The woman's referring to what? A sling. What did David kill Goliath with? A sling. She's bringing him back to that. Do you remember when you were a teenager and all you had was the name of the Lord and a sling? I mean, she is brilliant in what she's doing. Verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without any cause for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. By the way, last words. Does it look selfish? No. I think she's being a realist. I think she's saying this. I still know you're going to do something. But you remember me. By the way, a wealthy woman like this would have had an entourage as well. She would have had servants. She's looking out for them. Would you watch? Would you please remember me that, that I brought these things? And by the way, she took responsibility. She said, it's my fault. I mean, what kind of a woman is this? She says, my, my husband's name means fool. I say that because I expect my mom from heaven to smite me for it. She would not like me saying that word. I was never allowed to say that word. In, in home. She would never use that word. But in this Bible sense, this biblical sense, it's the word that's used, fool. I looked up so many books to see, was that really his name? Did the name Nabal mean fool? Its meaning is fool. I don't know who would name their kid fool. Don't know who. Don't know why. <laughs> but other than like the Calebites were that bad that they just named people, you know, after things like that. Verse 32. Watch the, uh, look at the reaction of David. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent this who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation in my own hand. By the way, remember that last verse because I'm going to close with that thought. From working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there would not have been left to Nabal so much as one male. Man, this is a guy that can receive rebuke. There's a story of a young man who goes in for an interview. He walks in for the interview, and the interviewer is a gruff business guy, very successful. He looks at the young man, he says, I want to ask you a question. He says, are you going to be honest enough and truthful enough and courageous enough to tell me the truth and come to me and tell me what I need to hear? The young man said, I can but are you going to be a man courageous enough to receive it? And you know, you think about it. This is a classic example of who is approachable and who wasn't. This young man, the servant of Nabal, didn't go to Nabal because he was unapproachable. Who did he go to? He went to his wife because she was approachable. She was more of a leader than he ever was. He knew he could go to her. And David, in a classic example, says this, Thank God you came out and you saved me. I don't know how many of us in here deal with rage or anger. I'm number one. You get you know, arrogance. People that want to hurt other people. People that are mean-spirited. Those things just round me up. I mean, it just does. Oh, I can't let things go. I don't know sometimes. When you approach someone in a, in, in a sort of justified 
rage, the last thing you want to hear is rebuke. Like, don't bring that to me right now. Because I'm totally 100% right. You know, godliness has nothing to do with being right. It just doesn't. And so he says, thank you. How many of us have had consequences change our lives? How many of us has had, because of consequences, because of things that have happened that we've done, they've changed us? And sometimes for the good. You look back and like, you know what? God, you disciplined me. You rebuked me. But I grew. You know what this is a picture of? This is a, one of those great definitions of grace. Here it is. This is when correction comes before consequence. Isn't that remarkable? That's the beauty of God's grace. This could have easily, he could have gone in there and killed these men and become just a disrespected leader in Israel and then change. But instead, God sent this woman. I've always said sometimes the most important sermons you can ever get are in line at Publix. Well, you never know who's going to say one thing or do something that will change the course of your day. Verse 35, Then David received her from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See that I've obeyed your voice, and I've granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal. Oh yeah, by the way, we knew this was coming, right? She had to tell him eventually. Abigail comes to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So she goes and she tells him, after he was waking up with this hangover, she says, um, Nabal, you're alive because of something. Had I not gone out there and stopped him, you would be dead. And all your friends and your drunk friends out here would be dead as well. But know this. Not only did I stop him, I took a whole lot of food out there. This guy reacts in a way that probably so much as induces a a heart attack or a stroke. Becomes, as they say, a stone is like, would have been a term used for like a coma. He goes right into a coma and 10 days later dies. So word goes back to verse 39. David, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who's avenged the insult that I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. You ready for this? Here it is. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Now, hold on, you're thinking, wait a minute, I thought David was married. He is married to a girl named Michael, who is King Saul's daughter. But she's living far away. That was an arranged marriage. She's far away. When the Bible mentions something, it is not teaching you to do something. There's a big difference. This is like, this is like, it's there. This is not like, well, uh, this is a the classic indication of the time. And so. Um, Verse 40. I just can't help but laugh when I see this. When the servants of David came to Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you with him as his wife. Now stop right here. Y'all know Abigail. This is a woman of discernment. This is a classy woman. This is a woman of esteem. This is a woman of privilege. You, you send men on horseback to ride up and say, Abigail, your husband's dead. 
David will take you as his wife. What does this woman of class do? What does she say? What does she react? Verse 41, she rose, bowed her face to the ground and said, let's get going. This woman doesn't miss a beat, gets on that donkey and takes off and becomes his wife. Man, if it was only so easy. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey. And her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Oh, by the way, verse 43 and 44 to close out this chapter indicates this. David also took Anum of Jezreel, both of them to be his wives. So he's adding to his harem here. Verse 44, Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Patty, the son of Laish, and was of Galam. So what did he do with his original wife? Saul just took, took her away and now gave her away to another home. It's probably to build an alliance. That's what they would have done back then. It's a lot of arranged marriages at the time, a lot of crazy things. So we tell the story, and we read through the story, and we just read an entire chapter, and I hope you get something out of this chapter. The beauty about what we walk through, we walk through these verses just to see what just jumps out. And sometimes somebody will say the greatest compliment is, you know, you didn't preach that at all at the 9 o'clock service. It was totally different. That's because sometimes the Holy Spirit sets something in your heart that's different. And so whenever you look at this, being a gospel-centered church, we believe not just in the history and the teaching of the Bible, we believe in the message of the Bible. Here's the beauty. Do you remember that verse in there that said, Thank you that I did not work out salvation with my own hand. Do you remember that? He said, I thank you that I, you stopped me from trying to work out my own salvation. Now here's the honesty club. You ready for this? There it is. How many of you in here have bought into this? That because of some, at one point in your life, it could be one point, it could be a lot, it could be something you're dealing with right now. How many, because of what you have done in your life, has there been a period of time or a moment when you felt you couldn't go to God? How many of you said, you know, because of what I did, there's just something, I, I, I can't even approach God, I can't pray. How many of you, because of what you have not done, have not approached God? How many of you said, you know what, I, I haven't, I don't pray, I don't read the Bible, because I don't pray and I don't know how to read the Bible and I don't know, and so you know what, I can't even go to God. Have any of you are now or have bought into that? This guy has. Have any of you others? Have you guys done it? How about it? You don't have to get so charismatic back there, sister. We know, I, we know you're a sinful mess, but that's all right. <laughs> Margaret, you and your honesty is what God wants to see when he says this. You know how to destroy that economy, of, which is not proper theology? Are you ready? Think about the polar opposite. Think about this. If you believe in that lie that there's something you've done or something you've not done to eliminate you from the presence of God, then it would only make sense if you bought that lie, you would believe the next one, which means this. You are such a good person and such a wonderful, godly person that you, by your own right and your own work, have the right to approach the greatest being, the greatest God, the creator of everything you know or have ever known. If anybody ever walked in and said that, we'd think, what a lunatic. Oh, no, I'm so godly I can approach God at any time. I mean, like, get out of here before lightning strikes on us, right? But yet, if as absurd as that is, so is the other. The other says, no, 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 it's not it. 
I was in India, and I'll never forget, there was a family that simply, they were telling us about, you know, man, you know, just calamities on us, and God is judging us, and he's smiting us. And I'm like, where does that come from? And it came from all this history of what they've been taught in their religion, and that's how God operates. I said, you're believers in Jesus. Now, it doesn't work that way. That's not how God works. I mean, there are consequences. When our country does what we do, and keep mocking and keep mocking, guess what? We're going to have consequences. We're already reaping them. We really are. And I tell people all the time that feel I, the way I do, like maybe, you know, we don't mention politics in here. We're always free of that. We'd never bring that. But, you know, in my own life, I know how I feel, and I have friends that feel the same way, and they're not, they don't believe. They're not believers. I'm like, how do you possibly, you better get on your knees and think whatever you need to think to say thank you for the Christian church that stopped this country from falling even further. This, the church of America, of Christ in America has been a great Abigail to say stop. Stop doing this. Which means we as believers need to come together with other churches. You know, I go preach in Cuba. It's not a, well, you preach at a Baptist church, don't preach at this church. No, I preached in three churches one night. A Baptist, a Pentecostal, and a, I forgot what other it was. Probably like us, nothing. A mixed breed, right? I went in all these churches, you know what they call that? Visiting family. You know what we do here? Breakdowns. Barriers. Oh yeah, the Catholics always worship in this statue and that statue. Let me tell you something about the Catholics. The Catholics are the ones that, I'll never forget when Mother Teresa came and stood over Bill Clinton over, at, over the um, at a prayer breakfast and said, you need to stop murdering babies. There wasn't a pastor alive, including Billy Graham, who had that courage to stand there in front of thousands of people. And a four-foot-nothing woman from Calcutta did it. You go, on, go to this place on the abortion clinic on Fletcher. Right now, right now, at this moment, there are people out there from the Catholic Church praying, just silently praying that people change lives. We sit there and say, well, you know, what about the, you know, a lot of charismatics who kind of get things off on some things and tangents. Go to the second largest food bank in Hillsborough County, run by a church smaller than us, right next door, feeding the poor. When you start to look at what God is doing in, in, in the lives of believers, and what do we start doing? If we're not careful, we'll be a church that says, those are my sheep. Those are my donkeys. Nobody touches my church. This ought to be a church where you walk in here in a godly way, where if you ever felt God to lead you somewhere, it's the same way. We send you with the same greeting as we send you in the same love. Because we trust you. And to think that we bought into it as a church, that we bought into it as a people to think somehow we have to earn the greatness of God. Max Lucado told of a missionary that was in Brazil, and he went down to Brazil, and there was a small river leading off the Amazon, and they didn't fish it. They didn't go into it uh, because they said the water was, um, it was polluted, it was contaminated, and they couldn't get in it, or something. It was, no, it wasn't, it was evil spirits and that kind of thing. And the missionary would tell him, no, 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 you can go into it, you can go into it. And the whole time, they're like, no, you can't. And he, he got into it ankle deep. He said, look, look at this. And they're like screaming at him, get out, get out, I guess, look, come here. And he gets waist deep. He says, look, I'm telling you, this is what you can do. Come, this, this water is fine. And then finally, he dives in. The village is screaming hysterically, thinking he's going to be eaten alive. Something's going to come out dead. And he comes out. Because these witch doctors had convinced this village that they couldn't take partake in this water anymore. And he came out and you see, it's safe. But no matter what we do, no matter what God does, we continually think we have to work out our salvation. We're no different than that village in the Amazon. 
what happens is God has said this, I have entered your world and begotten out of of heaven to Bethlehem and he is ankle deep. And he says, here I am. And we don't believe. And then he says, I'm going to take lashings and I'm going to to heal the blind and heal the sick and raise the dead. And he's standing waist deep. And what are we yelling? The world yelling, we don't believe. And then finally he plunges into a cross and into a tomb and then out of a tomb. And he plunges, he comes forth on the shore to say this, I have died for you and risen for you. And what does the world say? I need a miracle. I don't believe. It's crazy as the world is for trying to work out their own salvation, we as believers can buy into a lie of equal paramount if we're not careful. That we can only go to God when we've been good enough. Don't believe that lie. Maybe today the message of Abigail comes to you. Correction before consequence. To say this, you're forgiven. You're loved. You're pursued. And you're His. And there's nothing you can do as a believer to separate yourself from the love and the power and the hand of God. Because there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to leave it. He's that good. I hope you know when you walk in here, you're not only in a safe place, but you're in a place who's wanting to help. How do we share the gospel in here? And that is the person that brought you probably is the best example. And if you... At lunch, say to that person, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to have the Lord as your Savior? And if you're coming here as a family, you're coming here as an individual, say, I don't know, we don't know what that means. I'm here, there are other leaders here who would love, love. You would make our month to be able to share with you in a couple minutes what it means to have this saved grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thanks for your message. Thanks for the wisdom of a lady like Abigail. Thank you, Father, for an example that we have in David. Lord, we look at a man after God's own heart. We keep looking at his life and we keep thinking um, that, Lord, we, we, we keep thinking that... Um, let me see. If y'all don't mind, I just got a prayer request. We had a medical emergency for Ed Pappy, so the ambulance took him away. Let me just pray for him, okay? If I could do that. Lord Jesus, um, one of our own who's been having a lot of medical problems is now in an ambulance away to the hospital. Lord, we thank you for the quick response of people to help him. And our dear Ed, who's come in here, he and Mona, at a place medically, Lord, where they need you. God, we just pray right now, you've had your kind hand on our church as of late. We've seen some miracles. Lord, you would you be with Ed right now? God, you were, would you would restore him right now, please? And God, would you give Mona an overwhelming sense of peace? Lord, thank you for letting us be a church where we can be real like this. Lord, let us be a church, Father, that we come together collectively to know that you are in control. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.